Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at The Gate from 1987. Written by Michael Nankin and directed by Tibor Takash. This was written at a personal low point for Nankin. He'd started off hot in the late 1970s with a comedy short called Junior High School and a feature film, Midnight Madness, that both went on to become cult classics. The fact that Paula Abdul had a minor role in Junior High School didn't hurt. But he followed that up with a feature film that fell apart during the financing stage, taking virtually every penny he had with it, and wound up having to move back in with his parents to avoid winding up on the street. That must have gotten him reminiscing, because he wound up writing a dark, nasty screenplay about a pair of kids based on him and his best friend Terry, who dug a hole in the backyard and wound up unleashing hell on Earth. He shopped it around, but studios thought it was too intense and heavy for a story that revolved around children, so he wound up revising it to give it a happier ending, and that version did find a buyer. Unfortunately for Nankin, that buyer wanted to hand it over to another director, Tibor Takash, to do the actual production. Now, we've talked a little about Takash before, all the way back in the episode on sci-fi's made-for-TV movie Mosquito Man, aka Mansquito, but that was Takash in 2005, when he'd already made a name for himself as a television director and settled into a nice, comfortable career doing made-for-TV features. This was a much younger Takash, who was still coming out of his career as manager to punk bands in his hometown of Toronto. Takash was born in Hungary, but moved to Canada at a very young age. He'd directed a sci-fi musical, Metal Messiah, but The Gate was his first studio production, and he wanted the writer close at hand to give him insight and advice on the story in progress. So even though Nankin's dreams of directing were dashed, the two men turned out to be close collaborators, and the shoot went smoothly. Or... At least as smoothly as it could, given the inherent difficulties of making a movie with juvenile leads. Labor laws restricted the children to a schedule with limited hours and specific curfews, and tons of special effects sequences. And who were those kids? Well, Glenn, the main character, was played by a very young Stephen Dorff in his film debut. He's since gone on to be a leading man, albeit in the kind of interesting cult productions that aren't going to attract, and don't necessarily want, a Tom Cruise or a Richard Gere. He was the lead in the movie SFW, which stands for So Fucking What, not Safe for Work, just to clarify, and had major roles in Cecil B. Demented and I Shot Andy Warhol, and played villain Deacon Frost in the original Blade. He was also in Space Truckers, Fear.com, Alone in the Dark, and Leatherface, just to name some of his more genre-oriented work, and basically he's never been out of a job since this movie came out. It's a little weird to see him as a chubby-cheeked kid, honestly. Louis Tripp, who plays Glenn's best friend Terry, didn't have quite the same luck, even though honestly I think he's a more charismatic performer in this movie. It doesn't hurt that he gets all the interesting character beats, while Glenn has to be the good kid who tries to do the right thing all the time. Tripp came back for the sequel, The Gate to Trespassers, and in fact he was the only cast member of the first movie to do so, but that pretty much marked the end of his acting career, save for a short tribute film he did in 2020, where he reprised his role as Terry. I've seen a website that claims he changed his name to 1220 and works at a call center, but I'm in no position to verify that information and can't vouch for it. Wherever he is, I wish him well. 
Krista Denton, who plays Glenn's sister Alexandra, a.k.a. Al, has likewise dropped off the radar after 1990. She did have some roles before The Gate, mostly after-school specials and guest spots on TV shows, and a few parts after it, but it looks like she decided to give up on acting as a career and hasn't really participated in fan culture, either. As I mentioned in my episode on The Video Dead, this isn't at all unusual. Acting is a grind, with a lot of unpaid labor involved in getting to the point where you pick up a single role, and success doesn't always lead to bigger things. If it's not an all-consuming passion for you, you might very well decide to simply find a day job where nobody expects you to wait three hours for a 15-minute meeting, at the end of which they say, we'll call you, and then don't. But Kelly Rowan and Jennifer Irwin, who play Al's friends Lori and Linda Lee, respectively, have stuck with acting over the years and done fairly well for themselves. Rowan has an IMDb page very typical of Canadian actors in the 80s and 90s. There's some syndicated TV work in there, some guest spots on CBC shows, but she's been in some major productions too, like Hook, Assassins, the Candyman sequel Farewell to the Flesh, and 187 but she's probably best known as Kirsten in 92 episodes of The O.C. Irwin, meanwhile, is probably best known for her extended stint on The Goldbergs, where she played Virginia Kremp for 57 episodes, part of a whole career of extended supporting roles on sitcoms like Eastbound and Down, Breaking In, Still Standing, and The Gavin Crawford Show. She was also in the horror film The Mortuary Collection, which I own but haven't yet covered, and most recently in The Muppets Mayhem and American Born Chinese. And as I so often stress, this kind of longevity as a working actor is a huge success story, given the amount of hard work it takes to even get to the point where you have to stand in front of the cameras. Not everyone gets to be a glamorous superstar, and we salute the folks who go out there and hustle for every part and every role because there are so many people who never make it in Hollywood at all. And sadly, some people just don't make it, period. Sean Fagan, who plays Eric, the object of Al's crush, died at the age of 40 of liver failure in 2006. This was only one of three roles for him, a minor diversion from a much longer career as a writer, web designer, and political activist, and he passed away far too young. He sounds very much like the kind of person I would have liked to have met. And with that sad note out of the way, let's find something a bit more enjoyable to talk about as we dive into the movie, which begins, after the opening credits, with Glenn returning home to an absolutely lovely house in the suburbs, Seriously, I'd love to have a place this nice. It's so spacious, it's kind of edging on McMansion territory. Only to find his entire family missing. The front door's unlocked, dinner's on the table half-eaten, but nobody's home. Glenn goes looking in his sister's room, where he finds the model rocket they built together, the Thunderbolt, but no sister. He goes downstairs and finds a horror movie playing on TV, with an absolutely banging new wave track called No Pleasure by Canadian musician Eva Everything serving as its soundtrack, but again, no family. And I'm honestly not sure whether to ding the movie for opening with an obvious dream sequence or to compliment it for really nailing the authentic feel of a nightmare as opposed to giving us a typical Hollywood version. Not to compare it to the two episodes it's being sandwiched between, but this is a lot more like the bad dreams I've had than anything in the later Freddy movies. Glenn hears a noise from his treehouse in the backyard and climbs inside as a storm begins to blow up out of nowhere. The tree is hit by lightning and collapses with him still inside it, and as Glenn wakes to the sound of chainsaws, we discover there was some truth to the dream. The tree in the backyard was toppled by a lightning strike, and there are workers chopping it up and tearing out the dead stump before filling in and sodding over the hole. 
And before we go any further, I really do want to comment on the very interesting way that opening with a bad dream impacts the viewing experience, because The Gate is a movie that's full of surrealist horror, a commentary on the fears of childhood as they bubble up out of the subconscious, and I don't think it's a stretch to say that I watched every scene my first time through wondering if it was going to end with Glenn waking up out of it simply because there is such a strain of the nightmarish in all the horror. Nothing ever feels quite real, and while I suspect some people might hear that and think I'm complaining about the movie, I actually think it's quite lovely. It gives the film a delightfully fairy tale feel, different from anything else you might see in this era, and I think it's one of the story's real strengths. Glenn finds a geode tangled in the roots of the tree as it's removed, and calls his best friend Terry over to take a look at it. Terry immediately wants to dig for more, and rolls away the freshly laid sod so they can begin excavating for it in a scene that's so authentically childlike it almost hurts. I think we've all had those moments as a kid where we're so caught up in the excitement of the moment that our consequence brain never even kicks in. Their digging rapidly reveals an underground cavern filled with sulfurous gas, and in their haste to back away, Glenn digs a splinter the size of a toothpick out of the shovel and into the palm of his hand. But they do find a geode, a massive one, the size of a prize pumpkin, and Terry's looking forward to selling their find for the inconceivable sum of a hundred dollars. Ah, to be a kid again, when every bit of money could go to fun stuff. Incidentally, I have seen this listed as a goof in the film. Geodes aren't formed by lightning strikes, they're formed when gas bubbles in molten rock allow water to seep in and evaporate, leaving behind mineral deposits on the inner surface. But there's nothing in the movie that says the geodes were formed by the lightning strike, and in fact the big one appears to have been created by ancient demons who seek to return to the world they were banished from and turn it into a living hell on Earth, so I guess I'm saying you shouldn't necessarily come to this movie as a primer on Earth sciences? The dig is interrupted when Glenn's older sister Alexandra, who used to go by Al when they were both younger and she had more interest in spending time with her little brother, comes outside with a box of her childhood toys to throw into the trash. It's made clear very economically, if a bit clunkily, that Al is at that awkward age when she's racing so fast to be a grown-up that she's a bit thoughtless when it comes to the feelings of people younger than her. She doesn't want to hang out with Glenn and launch model rockets anymore, she doesn't want anything that reminds her she's not an adult yet, and she's very possessive of the trappings of adulthood. She heads off to the mall with her friends the Lee sisters, leaving Glenn to rummage through the trash for anything he wants to keep. A swarm of moths emerge from the hole, which should be a red flag and probably would be for anyone who's older than Glenn and Terry. Their exact ages are never given, but they're probably somewhere between 10 and 12. But the boys are too busy making plans to launch one of the rockets Al threw out to give the bugs more than token attention. Speaking of authentic kid behavior, I love when Glenn tells Terry that he can't launch his rockets unsupervised anymore after one of them hit the house, and Terry says, I'll supervise you. That is such a nice little touch of real-life kid logic. But the rocket's engine got wet, so they're forced to reluctantly give up the idea for now. That evening, Glenn's parents come home and discover the hole. The father is played by Scott Denton, and the mother by Deborah Grover, both hard-working Canadian character actors who went on to long careers. And they're not happy, but it's not overplayed the way a lot of parental discipline in movies are. Glenn is grounded for the weekend, he gets a little lecture on thinking things through and not letting his friends drag him into making bad decisions, and that's pretty much it. 
It's a proportionate response to I dug a hole in the backyard, which is kind of nice when so many kids' movies turn the parents into ogres as a sort of heightened this-is-how-it-feels-when-you're-this-age aesthetic. Although given the way the hole seems to be developing into a vast sinkhole that looks like it could consume the entire property, maybe they should be a little more concerned? But I'm getting ahead of myself. The immediate issue is that Mom and Dad are going out of town for the weekend, for entirely unspecified reasons, and it seems like their childcare options have fallen through. Al argues that she's just two weeks away from 16, very nearly old enough to drive, and she can be trusted to watch the house and her little brother for three whole days. Now, my parents were pretty indulgent as far as those things go, and I was right around the age Glenn was in when this movie came out, and even I have difficulty imagining this scenario playing out the way it does. My sisters would have been older than Al, though, so I can't be absolutely sure. But the more interesting thing to me is the way it sets up a conflict without any accompanying resolution. Because deep down, this is a pretty familiar plot for any kid's movie. Parents absent themselves temporarily after extracting a promise from the children to be responsible and avoid doing any permanent damage to anything valuable, in this case the house, and a minor error in judgment from the protagonist leads to some kind of imminent catastrophe that they have to either avert or correct before their mistake causes irreversible consequences in their relationship with the authority figures in their life. It's the recipe for hundreds of comedies, from Adventures in Babysitting to Project X, the 2012 version, not the 1987 version with Matthew Broderick, and it always ends with the parents coming back, either to total chaos that the kids get in trouble for, or to a narrowly averted disaster that they're none the wiser to. The tension comes from trying to figure out which one it's going to be. But in this movie, spoiler alert, the parents don't make it back by the end credits. We never see their reaction, and all of the tension over how will the kids cope with the sting of parental disapproval gets no explicit payoff, even though it's obvious from the state of the house at the end that they absolutely will not be able to cover for the whole mess. It's such an unconventional narrative choice that it really does throw off all your expectations for the story, especially when you combine it with an opening dream sequence that makes you wonder if any of it is really happening. I think it might risk leaving some audiences unfulfilled because their expectations of the trope aren't met, and I'm not entirely certain it was deliberate. Remember, the original screenplay ended with a full-on demon apocalypse and people being dragged out into the street and murdered, but I like the way it constantly leaves you in a certain amount of stress right up until the closing credits. The parents, of course, give in, and Glenn and his dad have a little heart-to-heart -heart before bed about Terry's wild stories, in addition to everything we've already seen, Terry apparently also told Glenn that one of the workmen who helped build their house got buried inside the drywall. But Glenn's dad explains to him that Terry's had a hard time coping since the death of his mother, and he's been acting out as a result. He tells Glenn to stay supportive, but maybe take some of his stranger tales with a grain of salt. Glenn falls asleep, and the next day his parents leave for three days with nothing more than a list of phone numbers on the fridge and a no-parties admonition for the kids. And because this is a movie that knows what it's doing and doesn't want to waste the audience's time, we immediately cut to a big party with two dozen people, lots of drinking and smoking, and Al trying frantically to keep the family dog Angus away from the snacks. Honestly, I have no idea how Al ever thought she could get away with it. The cigarette smell alone would linger for more than three days. 
She banishes Angus to Glenn's room, where he and Terry are trying to break open their massive geode, and Glenn cuts off Terry's criticism of the dog by pointing out that he's 97 in dog years and deserves some slack. Yes, it's a dog in a horror movie. An elderly, shaggy dog at that. Things do not look good for him. But when Glenn finally gets the geode open, it's not just sparkling but actually glowing with a sinister inner light, and it leaves behind a strange series of words on the magic slate it was resting on. When Glenn reads them out loud, the dog gives a visible start and the hole in the backyard begins to belch out more sulfurous smoke. The magic slates have gradually fallen out of favor in an era of iPads and smartphones, but they're still around even after a hundred years. The way it works is that you have a thin sheet of plastic resting on another sheet of wax paper and a stylus that's used to press the two together. Everywhere the stylus writes, the plastic sticks to the wax paper, making it darker than its surroundings, and when you've filled the sheet, you can simply lift the plastic to shake it free and erase everything you've written. It would have been instantly recognizable to any kid of the era and most adults as well. In fact, it was used by American diplomats during the Cold War to communicate in the presence of listening devices. Down in the party, one of the kids, Brad, played by Andrew Gunn, is telling spooky stories as Glenn and Terry sneak down to grab some food. They've been forbidden from going downstairs, but obviously it's hard to enact any kind of authority when they can always tell on her for having the party without permission. The teens decide to try the old light-as-a-feather, stiff-as-a-board game using Glenn as the reluctant subject. This is an old game dating at least as far back as the 1600s, where several people try to lift someone at the exact same time and find them far lighter than expected because each person only has to lift a fraction of the subject's weight. This is usually attributed to magic, mind-over-matter psychic powers, or whatever fun and silly nonsense the organizer suggests that day. But in this case, it goes a lot further than expected. Glenn literally floats right out of the hands of the people lifting him and smacks into the light fixture, breaking the bulb. He flies across the room, breaking another light fixture on the way down, and runs off sobbing as Paula, the organizer, who's played by Ingrid Venninger, a woman who went on to some fame as a film director in her own right, apologizes for being a little too good at her job. Al agrees to let Terry stay over as a way of making it up to him, but the swarming moths outside Glenn's window keep him awake. There seem to be more and more of them, and the bug zapper in the backyard is working overtime keeping the population down. He also thinks he sees something moving inside the walls in a clever application of the old rubber sheet painted to look like drywall gag from A Nightmare on Elm Street. But even more troubling, Terry gets up to go to the bathroom and sees what he thinks is his mother, dressed in gauzy white robes and beckoning him down to the front door. But when he hugs her, she transforms into the corpse of Angus, who succumbed to the ravages of old age at last. The next day, Terry goes home, he's wearing a killer dwarf's jacket, a nod to Takash and his punk music roots, while Glenn tries to persuade Al to call their parents and at least let them know the dog is dead. But at just two weeks away from her 16th birthday, Al would rather chew off her own tongue than admit to her mom and dad that she can't handle three days of being in charge, and she physically takes the list of phone numbers away from Glenn when he tries to call them himself. She decides to go with Lori and Linda to the mall to buy supplies for a beach party that evening, planning to leave Glenn alone in a clear abdication of her responsibilities as well as a hurtful slight against a brother who clearly loves spending time with her. Meanwhile, also home alone, Terry decides to crank up a heavy metal band called Sacrifix, and as with Dream Warriors, you can see the way Listens to Heavy Metal is used as a quick shorthand for emotionally troubled youth. 
Also on the list of highly authentic kid tropes you don't often see in a major studio movie, I knew some heavy metal fans growing up. Believe me when I say that a lot more of them were nerdy skinny kids with glasses than the usual hulking headbangers you see in the movies. Terry lip-syncs to the spoken word bridge of the song, clearly familiar with the lyrics to the point of knowing them by heart, and I love this scene so much because it perfectly conveys something so essential to the weird nerdy kid experience. He's performing to an audience of one, wrapping himself up in his sheet as though it was a cloak, and dramatically gesturing along to the words. And Tripp is given permission to be just insanely dorky here in a way you don't often see in movies, precisely because it is kind of risible. His improvised prop is rainbow-colored, making him look goofy, and to modernize campy and queer, and if this was a slightly more self-aware movie, I'd wonder if they were trying to say something about Terry's orientation and he legitimately acts like an unself-conscious tween who feels cool to himself even though he'd be intensely embarrassed if anyone were to ever see him. It's such a mood, and it really exemplifies the way this movie captures something essential about childhood that much bigger and more deliberately artistic films about being young don't. As he recites the lyrics about ancient pre-human demons who once ruled Earth before being banished beyond our universe behind a gate that they perpetually seek to reopen, Terry begins to actually connect what he's hearing with what happened to him over the last two days. He takes out the album, which is one of those gorgeous gatefold LPs with a whole pamphlet full of liner notes that they only made in the heyday of 70s prog rock pretentiousness, and begins to reread the text with a care and attention that he's never needed to exercise before. All back to the wild rantings of the lead singer, who warns of the evil that lies behind the gate just waiting to be unleashed. Eric offers to take the dog's corpse to the animal shelter for disposal, but after everybody goes their separate ways, and I'll warn you right now, there's an exchange of insults here between Glenn and the condescending teens that does involve a homophobic slur, Eric finds out the shelter is closed and winds up dumping Angus in the hole in the backyard. Heartbroken by his sister's neglect, Glenn unwraps the birthday present he got for her, a new electric launch system for their model rockets so that they don't have to light fuses anymore, and throws it back behind his bed. The themes of this movie are simple, don't get me wrong, but simple doesn't have to be a flaw. Terry comes racing over, and he and Glenn cover up the new hole in the backyard with bits of the old treehouse, which give it a door in a nicely ominous touch, before they go over to Terry's house to examine the Sacrifix album. Terry explains that this was their only album, and they derive their lyrics from a real text on demonology called The Dark Book that they reprinted in the liner notes before the entire band died in a plane crash. I would eat this kind of silly, goofy, heavy metal urban legend lore up with a spoon three meals a day if the movie let me. No lie. It turns out that everything that's happened, the hole, the geode, the mystic words on the magic slate, the sigils that accompany them, Glenn's bloody splinter, and even the levitation and the dead dog, all form a kind of accidental ritual to summon the demons back into our world. Eric throwing Angus's corpse into the hole is a further step that allows the demonic minions entrance, and they're going to seek two human sacrifices to complete their power and recreate their hell on earth. Luckily, the album contains backmasking with a hidden ritual that will banish the demons and seal the gate. The boys go over and recite the ritual, 
Isn't that kind of insulting? Glenn asks when Terry tells the unholy abominations to freeze in the infinite golden darkness of their own hideous creation. And it seems to work, at least from a practical angle. When they lift up the makeshift barricade, the ground is filled in again. And Alexandra returns, having decided to give up on malls and beach parties to have fun launching model rockets with her little brother the way she used to, which is incredibly sweet and kind. Honestly, my only complaint about this sequence, as someone who's done a little hobby rocketry of my own back in the day, is how close they stand when launching. Those engines are solid rocket fuel, and they are no joke. That night, the Lee sisters come over for a slumber party, and while I think the movie is trying to suggest that Glenn and Terry's disdain for them is the usual Ew, girls! attitude of tween boys typical of movies in this era, honestly, they are pretty mean-spirited and pointlessly nasty. They're only three or four years older than Glenn and Terry, but they're really vicious in their insults about the maturity of the younger kids, including another homophobic slur and an ableist taunt about Down syndrome that was also pretty common back in the day. Thankfully, that's as far as that kind of problematic content goes in this movie, but it is worth warning any potential audiences about it because they'd never put it in a film now. And speaking of it was acceptable in the 80s, Terry and Glenn find their dad's hunting rifle in the front closet, which, Jesus, is that the scariest thing in the movie so far, and they also find the Thunderbolt from Glenn's dream. Al apparently told Glenn she threw it out, which is why it featured so prominently in his dream, and he's thrilled to discover she couldn't quite bring herself to get rid of it. He takes his prize and retreats to his bedroom, where he and Terry read comics. I couldn't tell which ones for sure, but the art style looked a lot like Fred Hembeck. And Glenn takes a closer look at the heavy metal liner notes. And that's when, after 43 minutes of playful, kid-friendly comedy and wacky misadventures, this film cuts the fuck loose. It starts with a shadow on the staircase from the basement to the main floor, darkening the family photos on the wall as it descends. Glenn hears it, but he also hears the bug zapper outside, even though he knows he unplugged it, and he gets up to go and look out the bedroom window. But just as he closes the shade, a wind from nowhere shatters the window inwards, and he's showered in moths and broken glass. He goes to get Al, and together the two of them go in to wake up Terry, but he's standing behind them, wondering what's going on. And what's in the bed is the bloody corpse of Angus the dog in what could be one of the most intense moments I've ever seen in an adult horror film, let alone one ostensibly for kids. Several weird, fleshy arms then shoot out from under the bed, grabbing Al by the ankles and trying to drag her into the darkness. But the boys help her get away, and together the three of them flee the room. The Lee sisters join them as they race downstairs and out the front door, where they thankfully find their parents coming up the front walk to meet them. But when Glenn races up to his father, Dad grabs him around the throat and shouts, You've been bad! in a strange, inhuman growl that sounds like someone trying to replicate a human voice. Glenn tries to push him away, but his hands go straight into Dad's face like it was rotten fruit, and fluid gushes out of the messy holes in a 0-60, to 60, oh my fucking god, what the fuck shift into intense, visceral body horror. You know how potters will sometimes keep a little mug of water to dip their fingers into while working on the pottery wheel to keep the clay soft and supple? You know how the water quickly gets dirty with little particles of suspended clay? That's what looks like it's pouring out of Dad's face right before his head falls clean off and splatters into a clump of disgusting meat. 
The group runs back inside, and Mom and Dad instantly vanish, but the lights go out and all the interior doors slam shut, leaving them with just the living room and the kitchen. They get flashlights and candles and try for the back door, but the yard is infested with a number of monsters about a foot tall each, with gnarled, knobbly bodies and expressions of blank menace on their inhuman faces. These are the minions, the original minions, not the twinky-looking motherfuckers from the Despicable Me movies, and they're the creations primarily of Randall William Cook, who is the effects designer and supervisor for the picture. Cook was determined that he didn't want to use blue screen, because he felt like audiences had gotten used to spotting the matte lines where the FX elements were composited into the shot, and he didn't want to use stop motion any more than he absolutely had to. So he took a trick from our good friend Dennis Murin and his movie Equinox, and crafted a dozen or so full-sized latex monster suits, and used forced perspective to make them look like they were only a foot high. And the results are, oh my gosh, are they convincing. Time and time again, I found myself doing a double-take at the screen, wondering where the matte line was, or how they got the stop-motion to move so fluidly. It's an artfully done illusion, one that really allows you to appreciate all the time and effort that went into constructing all those detailed monster suits. And frankly, I can't imagine a single person watching this movie, now or at the time it was released, and not coming away with the impression that what you were seeing was somehow real. Although, again, let's not pretend that this fooled the actors into giving better performances. They all knew they were looking at full-size stunt performers 20 feet away. This didn't convince them of anything. Al races inside, snipping off a minion's arm in the door, and it simply melts into a number of sperm-like wriggling creatures that slide underneath the door and back outside. But before she can call the police, the phone rings. It's her father, once again saying, You've been bad, moments before the telephone bursts into flames and explodes. With no other options, the group decides to use the dark book to close the gate properly this time. They descend the stairs into the basement, and in what I think may be one of my all-time favorite movie scares, the photos now depict the family's bloody corpses. But the album bursts into flames, taking the liner notes with it. Rapidly brainstorming, they decide to read passages from the family Bible at the whole, with the Lee sisters using their Sunday school knowledge to find something appropriately banishy before deciding they're maybe going to wait inside rather than approach the hellgate with the demons that need two human sacrifices to kickstart the apocalypse. I'll admit, the first time I watched this movie, I immediately assumed that they were there to be disposable victims. The hole has reopened under the treehouse door, now glowing with purple light, but as Terry reads the biblical passage, which is, like most biblical passages in movies, not actually in the Bible, a vortex begins to form that sucks in the sulfurous smoke and the lumber barricading the cavern. And Terry, who falls down the passage and is menaced by a growing horde of minions that bite and claw at him. He manages to climb out, though, and throws the Bible itself into the hole, which seems to seal it off and end the threat once and for all. Again, I don't mind that nothing they try actually works, but I do kind of mind the way they're utterly convinced each time that their problems are over despite the warning that the gate can only be truly closed by a mild spirit wielding the power of love and light. With everything seemingly over and the electricity back on, the trio goes back inside to find the Lee sisters wearing garlic necklaces and wielding improvised crosses in a neatly silly touch. I love the humor in this movie. It really does come from a very real place of a bunch of teens and tweens trying to use their half-remembered lore from old horror flicks to stop a real supernatural menace completely outside of human understanding. 
The slumber party almost resumes, but when Al finds out that the Lee sisters have invited over Eric and a couple of other boys without telling her, she decides she's had enough youthful rebellion for one weekend and kicks them all out. I really thought they were there to pad the body count, but nope, they legitimately leave and don't come back for the rest of the film. Al decides to go clean up, but just as things seem to be getting back to normal, the drywall in the basement bursts open to reveal a desiccated corpse in tattered, rotting overalls. Glenn immediately recognizes it as the workman from Terry's story, and even though Terry protests he simply made the whole thing up, that doesn't stop the zombie from grabbing him and dragging him into the space between the walls moments before it seals up again as if nothing had happened. We do get a bit of an explanation for this shortly, but I kind of love the idea of a made-up urban legend becoming real for no reason other than the universe secretly hates us and wants us to suffer. That's good cosmic horror there. Glenn goes to warn his sister, finding to his horror that the demonic sigils from the magic slate are now scrawled all over the walls of his house. He gets to her just as the workman bursts out of the mirror, and when Al clocks the zombie in the head with her boombox, he falls forward and splits into a dozen or so minions as if they'd simply combined to form the embodiment of Glenn's fears like some sort of evil silly putty. The two of them flee the room, heading for the hall closet and their father's gun, but the demonic version of Terry appears and attacks Glenn. Al helps get rid of him by stabbing him in the eye with her old Barbie doll, and this is why you should never throw away your childhood toys, I guess. But when the workman reappears, the rifle does nothing, and he drags her into the wall as well. And with the sacrifices complete, the floor bursts open and a towering, two-story-high demon emerges from it. This is stop-motion, but Cook's detailed sculpting and careful, meticulous animation gives it a fluidity that's frankly so impressive that at first I thought it might be animatronic or suitmation. Glenn barely skirts the hole and gets up to his room, realizing that the energy of love and light could mean his shared love with Al of model rocketry. He finds the thunderbolt in the launching stand, but he can't get the fuse to light before the demon is upon him. It marks him with his power, and he's horrified to discover an eye opening in the middle of his left palm. I feel pretty confident that this is a reference to the Stephen King short story, I Am the Doorway, published in 1971. That one features a whole ring of eyeballs around the central eye, not just the one, but the image was used as the cover to his 1978 short story collection, Night Shift, and I'm pretty sure it was nightmare fuel for an entire generation. Out in the backyard, a swirling tornado erupts from the gate, rising to the heavens and darkening the skies and portending the beginning of the hell on earth described in the dark book. This is presumably where they would have had the demons emerging to drag people out into the streets and disembowel them and all the nastiness that they wound up cutting. Glenn collapses to the floor, almost despairing, but instead he stabs out the eye in his hand with a shard of broken window glass to force the demon to return for him. He then grabs Chekhov's electronic launching system and goes back downstairs to retrieve the Thunderbolt from where it fell. There's a final moment of tension as the rocket initially fails to launch, its batteries not included after all, but he still has his handy flashlight, and that's got the D-cells he needs to banish evil once and for all. Happy birthday, Al! He shouts, launching the rocket straight into the demon's chest and defeating it with the power of love. And, you know, a rocket to the chest. It's kind of like that time I clocked that guy with the baseball bat my dad gave me. The demon goes up in a towering flash of light that hurls Glenn clean out the front door and halfway across the yard, and he watches in a daze as the sky lights up with fireworks, 
I kind of wish that this was something a bit more overtly supernatural, but I get it. This was a low-budget film, and they'd already done a lot. And the vortex reverses itself to reveal the brightness of a new dawn. Al, Terry, and even Angus the dog emerge from the house, entirely unharmed, and they're all left to ponder exactly what kind of story they're going to tell their parents as the credits roll. And I think I like that most of all about this movie. I can see a darker version I would have liked as well, don't get me wrong, but there's something very sweet and restorative about a movie where vanquishing the evil and saving the day brings about a complete return to the old order of things. I'm glad there's almost nothing mean to this movie, as scary as it is once the gate opens, and I love the kindness of Glenn and Al's relationship. It's not a complicated theme, there's not a lot of alternative interpretations to be had here, but it makes its simplicity a virtue and genuinely charms the viewer with a classic story well told. And will I hang on to this movie? Well, I've probably already given it away, but yes. It's fun, it's happy, apart from one or two unfortunate word choices, it's aged remarkably well, and it's kind of a weird comfort flick that does cosmic horror without going full dark, no stars. I liked it, and I'm very glad I got it for my birthday, which makes me three for three on presents this year, and I'd like to thank my family for everything they do for me, both for the pod and everywhere else. And if you want to talk about family-friendly cosmic horror, movies where the dog dies and gets resurrected, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, well, we ended a movie with some Elm Street kids still alive and kicking, so you know Freddy's not going to take that lying down in consecrated soil. So let's dive into what could be the most energetically campy Freddy sequel, Rennie Harlan's Salute to Dream Logic and Horror Excess, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. See you then.